Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to this week's episode. There's an elfin and puckish energy to artist Catherine Longhurst. She looks into the heart and soul of each subject and has the technical ability to draw that out of the eyes of every portrait she paints, making her canvases feel as though they have come to life. None more so than a recent portrait of Kate Seberano, which is a finalist and won the Packing Room Prize for this year's Archibald Prize, which is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. This portrait of Kate has given her a queen-like serenity, powerful, fierce, the Joan of Arc of music in Australia, and as a subject, you couldn't wish for anything more than that, could you? Catherine is a child of the Cold War era, having grown up behind the Iron Curtain in East Germany. Much of her work captures the contrast between war propaganda imagery and the glamorous promises of the other side of the wall. However, in place of the fearsome male figures of power are female warriors. The current phase of the digital revolution is delivering another chilling wave of censorship and propaganda, making Catherine's style and work all the more compelling and relevant. The Berlin Wall came down and Catherine left East Germany, eventually falling in love with an Aussie sailor in Western Australia and finding herself living in Australia. 20 years later, she has two teenage children, with the same bloke and lives in Sydney. Catherine's become a well-respected member of the Sydney arts community. She served as vice president for Portrait Artists Australia and was the founder and director of the innovative Project 504. Catherine's work is highly sought after and is collected across the globe. She completed her 18th solo show in 2021 and has been a finalist in numerous awards, including the Archibald Prize, the Doug Moran, the Darling Prize, the Sulman Prize, the Percival Portrait Award, the Mossman Art Prize, the Portia Geach Award, the Shirley Hannon National Portrait Prize, and the Western Australian Black Swan Prize. Please welcome to the blank canvas, Catherine Longhurst. Good morning, Catherine. Hey, hey, Lee. How are you today? Good. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I must say you're sporting a fabulous Archie 100 hoodie. I've been wearing that nonstop. I love it. It's got sparkles on it. It's like got a, it says Archie 100 and the 100 is gold. I love it. Very striking. Can you tell us what Archie and the 100 means for those that aren't, aren't seeing it and don't know? <laughs> um, so I'm advertising the Archibald 100 exhibition, which is showcasing Archibald paintings from the last 100 years. And we are, of course, lucky to be part of this year's finalist exhibition, the 2021 Archibald Prize, which is also exhibited at the Art Gallery of New South Wales at the same time. There was a bit of a plug for the Art Gallery. <laughs> Fabulous. So for those that don't know, the Archibald is the, the premier Australian art prize, basically, isn't it? And, yeah, yeah, and, absolutely. And, yeah, by a like, long shot. I mean, it's not the, the richest prize. Like there, There's prizes with bigger prize money, but yeah. it's definitely the prize that everyone knows. I think most people in Australia, even not in the art world, would know what the Archibald is. Um, even overseas, you know, when you talk about the Archibald in art circles, people know yeah. the Archibald. And it's the, the paintings are hung in the Art Gallery of New South Wales mm -hmm. and a painting you did of who and... <laughs> of your amazing wife, Kate Serrano. <laughs> <laughs> Won the Packing Room Prize this year, which was very unexpected and very, ah, oh, huge. It was huge. It, it's, you, you kind of the, the toast of the town for a, for, a, <laughs> for a month, dare I say. Your painting is all over town. I mean, it's on banners all over the city, massive banners. It's on, you know. Bus shelters. Uh, bus shelters. And, it's, yeah. on, it's kind of everywhere, isn't it? Yeah. That must be an incredible buzz. Oh, it's, it's been crazy. And uh, 
I sort of sometimes feel I've, I've probably got more love and, you know, publicity than the actual winner of the Archibald because everyone knows who's won the, the packing room prize and everyone loves Kate. And it's been really funny because I've had people that I haven't spoken to for 10, 15 years probably congratulating me and people coming out of the woodworks like, oh, my God, oh, my God. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's an incredible portrait. I mean, thank you. The first time I saw it, just you know, on a phone, it took my breath away. And mm. then when I saw it at the gallery in person, mm. it did the same thing again. My heart skipped a beat. It's. <laughs> I mean, I'm in awe of anyone who can draw and paint huh. because I can't. And I, I remember even as a kid at school, my brother paints really well and yeah. used to be able to, you know, and can draw incredibly well. So I was always trying to rope him in for my school projects to, <laughs> to do the sketch, to do this. And still to this day, I'm like a stick figure guy, you know, doing storyboards. It's just basic stick figures. But yeah, it never ceases to amaze me, that skill. At school, were you sketching incessantly on your school diary and things like that? Tell us about your upbringing and when did you start drawing and painting? Well, I guess I've always painted and, and drawn my entire life. I don't even remember the first time I held a pen. My vague memories of my grandmother giving me a pen and a scrap. I still have some scrapbooks that my grandmother had saved for me where I would have been like maybe two years old, could just hardly sit up. So it's always been there. At school, I was recognised for my drawing and painting skills. But, you know, I grew up in East Berlin behind the Iron Curtain and there wasn't really a career path for me as an independent artist. I remember once a year we would have the career counsellor come into class and, and they would interview everyone, like, what are your aspirations for work when you leave school? And every year I would write down, I want to be an artist, I want to be an artist. And I would always be counselled that, you know, there's not really room in the plan economy for artists, but you could become a product designer or an industrial designer. So I was, I was coached towards moving into that career. And um, yeah, I still have an application I wrote to enter into like an art high school which obviously I didn't make it into because by that time my mum had already met a Westerner that she was going to marry and we sort of seen as the enemies, uh, we'd become an enemy of the state. I wasn't really supported in, you know, joining my, my art passion. wasn't wasn't worthwhile investing in me because we were going to leave the country anyway. Right. So, yeah, that's my upbringing. Wow, what a trip. <laughs> So what age were you when you left East Berlin? We left East Berlin in 87, which was two years before the wall came down. And I remember it clearly from those days. So mum always tried to somehow get us out of the country and she divorced early and, and then would start dating Westerners as a way of, you know, getting a ticket out of the country and uh, she ended up marrying a Swede, a Swedish construction worker. So we moved to to Sweden in 87, yeah. And at that time, who would have known that the world would come down? It would, you know, it was going to stand for another thousand years, right? Wow. Yeah, so I was in year nine and then started in Sweden. I started high school and did my university in, in Sweden as well. Wow. And what did you do at university? <laughs> um, I did. I did a complete business degree, believe it or not. I spent five years. I've got a master's in business administration. What a trip! I know. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of it ha is to do though with with me growing up in you know in a socialist country. So when I, when I came to the, the West, I, I thought like, oh, I need to become a really good little capitalist and uh, do business because that's what expected of me, right? Um, so I'd never seen art as an avenue for me to, to pursue. And to be fully honest, nothing is ever wasted, right? So I find today having a background in business, I sort of approach my art practice in a very business-like manner. I will sit and write my mission statement. I will sit and work on goals and how to, 
you know, achieve those and where I want to be. I will think about marketing and and things like that. That I guess the average artist wouldn't really think about. So, yeah, nothing is ever wasted. No, no, you're right. I know very little of this, so this is really interesting. <laughs> My God. So tell me at school growing up in a socialist country, mm. um, as you mentioned, you know, the West was the enemy. Mm. How was it at school and how was it then going to Sweden and how you grappled with all of that mm. and found yourself, found your voice having to go from, you know, one side to the other? Mm. Well, I guess the the closest example of living behind a wall would be North Korea now. So that was pretty much what my childhood was like. We, we were behind the wall and we weren't allowed to travel, to leave the country. We were allowed to holiday in other, you know, Eastern Bloc countries. So I spent a lot of summers at my auntie's house in Hungary. But everything we read and watched on television was censored and filtered. You couldn't go to a bookstore and just buy any book. It was all prepared by and approved by the government. Schooling was, you know, I mean, at the time, you, you, growing up, you didn't know anything else. You, you never really felt that you were missing out really because all you've seen is is you know, what you had. Um, but schooling was very political indoctrination from very early on. We were constantly writing essays on, you know, political dogma and I still have a couple of essays I wrote on, which is a complete rehashing of communist propaganda that, you know, we were taught from from very very early on. And um, in my first school books, like first math books, we learned how to count with soldiers and tanks. So there was also this this huge militarization of the education. We uh, were constantly told that there was a threat of the Americans. So in year nine, we would do civil defence classes. So we were taught first aid and recognising defence sirens and uh, weapon handling and things like that. So it was, you know, all encompassing. You know, there was no escaping it. I mean, I was lucky because we were in Berlin and there were a lot of Westerners coming to visit. So it was always the um, showcase of East Germany. So our shops were always stocked with food, you know, always the streets look nice and, and we actually would receive the West German television channels. Like, I mean, the Stasi would walk around and have a look at the direction of the antenna, where the antenna is pointing. <laughs> and, and if anyone was pointing it in the wrong direction, you were in trouble. Um, you know, you would watch Tom and Jerry or, you know, Dallas and Dynasty in secret, but you weren't allowed to talk about it. You know, you wouldn't be allowed to mention it at school, for example. But that was so weird because my first impression of the West was from Dallas and Dynasty. So Wow, big, big, <laughs> big shoulder pads. Is that the first thing you, d- you did when, you went, when you went to the West? You... <laughs> <laughs> so, so coming to Sweden was such a shock and I was at such a vulnerable age at 15 where you are, you know, so fragile, you know, and then coming to this new country and being faced with this new reality where you start questioning everything in your life. Like you question what's true, what's false. I had to relearn history. I had to relearn geography. I had to confront some really big questions about who can you trust? Who do you believe in? And that was extremely confronting, especially as a teenager. I mean, I remember in, in discussion years, years later, I was told, you know, that Stalin had killed millions of people. I'm like, I did not know that. I'd never heard of that. I'm like, I thought Stalin was one of the good ones. So 
you know, and I think it's, it's so funny because, like, for the longest time I've felt really um, embarrassed about where I came from. I remember moving to Sweden and if someone asked me where you're from, I would say, oh, I'm German. I wouldn't say I'm from the East because I guess I didn't want to be seen as sort of the poor cousin from the East. But now I've really realised what a privilege it's been to see the world from both sides, to have that sort of insight into what it can be like on the other side. And it makes you also, I guess, a lot more sceptical and cynical towards, you know, the, the information and the media we are consuming and double and triple checking all the facts and where did you get that information from and what's your sources and how do you know that this is true? It so. must be pretty surreal watching the censorship that's happening right now, mm. having come to the West, yeah. relearned history and now watching the West go through this incredible censorship. It's yeah, like a whole other digital scale of oh, Big Brother, gosh. isn't it? But also, you know, we were surrounded by a physical wall, but we are now creating these digital walls around us through these algorithms where one side doesn't even talk to the other side anymore because we just live in our own self-imposed little bubble. Echo chamber. Um, yeah, it's like an echo chamber and, and we don't see compromises anymore. We don't speak to the other side and it freaks me out because it's pretty much what... I grew up with, there is this enemy on the other side that is just evil, you know, yeah. and we can't, we can't talk to each other. Yeah, frightening. It is. I actually did a whole exhibition on that subject. Did you really? Yes, yes. Recently at my gallery at Nanda Hobbs, uh, was called Indoctrinated. So I was looking at different aspects of my childhood and whether it was, you know, Pioneer, like marching songs for children or civil defence classes. or And then, you know, just reminding people of that that actually happened and as, um, as sort of like a warning to what can happen again. Because I think people easily forget history. Yeah, the, the slippery slope if you can't communicate and compromise mm -hmm. and be the other side, be the other person and understand their viewpoint and go, mm. oh, okay, I understand, and then converse back and forth and find a solution. If they're the enemy and you can't talk to them, it's like, hey, guys, this is a slippery slope. Yeah. So the work of yours is infused, obviously, with the themes of propaganda and, and your upbringing. From when you started drawing and started painting, did it have that style back then or was that something that's evolved over time? Definitely evolved. I went through a phase where I painted just really pretty things. <laughs> I sort of needed to get that out of the system because, you know, the imagery I grew up with was quite, yeah, it was propaganda paintings and I just needed to paint lots of women in beautiful dresses and gorgeous jewellery, uh, painted flowers. And then I felt, okay, I'm done with that. I've, I've indulged. Now what is my story? What's my message? And I, I sort of found my expression. I found what I wanted to say. I found my story. And it was really fun to use the language of propaganda and the imagery and turn it on its head and sort of making a mockery out of that without being prosecuted, without ending up, you know, behind bars for taking the piss <laughs> and promoting my own sort of vision, which has always been empowering women. So I'm, I'm doing propaganda paintings with a twist and I'm promoting imagery of strong, capable, awesome, fearless, powerful women. Yeah, that's what I do now. That's where I arrived. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do a fine job of it and timing-wise, it, it's a good time for doing such a thing in mm. this era of, you know, equality. Um, I do love these propaganda-style images, but without the heroic man, it's the heroic woman. That's right. It's just awesome. So... 
well mm. done. Because I'm not that familiar with the timeline. How long ago did you tap into that? Is that the last few years or was this a decade or so ago? Yeah, probably a decade. So it would have been when I first joined my Sydney gallery, um, 2012, I had a uh, painting in the Sulman Prize, which is one of the prizes that is part of the Archibald Prize, of a young woman in a hat and a red bra throwing a hand grenade. And that's the one that launched me into the art world seriously because people noticed that painting. It was hung at the entrance to the Sulman Prize exhibition and it made quite a splash in the art world. That's, you know, what really launched me to be known as the woman that paints strong females. It got my attention. <laughs> that one. <laughs> Did you actually see that? <laughs> <laughs> Not at the time, but more recently I, uh, when Kate sat for the painting with you, I went, oh, who is this woman? I checked out and I'm like, oh, yeah, I had seen that. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. So, so that's really the start of um, the works, the new works, because I, I'd been painting these, these strong female subjects for, for years and then all of a sudden Me Too hit. And that was such a... Uh, major shift for the world in general because all of a sudden people craved that sort of imagery of powerful, capable women and it really made a huge difference to my own work because all of a sudden people saw me as someone who was at the forefront of that whole... Revolution. <laughs> exactly. Of, of that shift in sentiment. Yeah. Where we relate to women very, very differently. We still have a long way to go. But, you know, I'm excited about how far we've come. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a good time to be a female artist. Definitely is. So let's go back to um, after uni... Mm-hmm. How did you, um, what did you do when you left uni and when did you start painting? Okay, like, so, like as in painting and selling paintings. So during uni, I actually did a um, student exchange during uni that took me to Australia. So I spent a year as an exchange student at Murdoch Uni uh, in West Australia, in Perth, that university has actually been in the media quite a bit recently for allowing people that are not very good at English to take a place there and charging them full fees and they're not... Yeah, that, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I arrived there and I'm like, oh, my God, I don't understand what that person is saying, you know, walking through customs in, in Perth. Anyway, so I was renting this little flat with this Canadian girl, Jody, And uh, so we were in Unit 8 and in Unit 4 were all these really hot sailors from the Endeavour. And I ended up being invited over to a party at their house and met like <gasps> my dream guy. He's just so handsome. And uh, turns out, you know, we've now been married for 23 years, have two kids. It was, you know, the one that I met then. So my husband was working on the Endeavour at the time and he ended up coming to Europe with me after having left the ship. So he sailed halfway around the world because the Endeavour was doing their major refit to take off on their first circumnavigation of the world. And uh, so he sailed it all the way to London, sailed under the Tower Bridge, met the Queen and then jumped ship to come and live with me in Sweden. So <laughs> I finished finished uni in Sweden, had my last year of uni left, and then... I sort of started looking around for work and got my first job as a sales rep in Brussels, in Belgium. So we actually lived in Belgium for a year. It was excruciating because neither of us spoke the language. Anthony couldn't work because they didn't 
take de facto as, you know, a valid reason for residency. But it was a fun time. Oh, my God, Brussels, it's such an international city. Like, everyone is a foreigner. You know, you've got the EU headquarters there. And we had an awesome time. But in the end, it was just not sustainable. So he went back onto the Endeavour and I ended up joining him. So I was sailing along the American uh, West Coast. Yes, West Coast. So from San Diego up to Vancouver. Wow. On that amazing ship and we were treated like royalty. Every port we arrived in, people were like, oh, my God, you're with that cool pirate ship. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, uh, it was the most amazing year. Uh, just traveling around and then exploring America. So that was really, really cool. That was such an amazing experience. And I think that's what made our relationship so strong as well. Throughout our marriage, we've seen each other in so many different roles. I was the breadwinner when we were in Sweden, uh, when we were in Belgium. He wasn't working I was providing for both of us. And then we, we flipped roles and I was the deckhand who was scrubbing decks, whereas he was one of the officers on the ship and like a superstar. He had groupies in every port, people that would just send him love letters along the Is this because he was on the Endeavour on that famous trip? Yeah, and because he looks like a pirate. He's a pretty spunky (laughs) guy, I must say. And he's really, he's a lovely guy too. He's a sweetie. He he? is, he is. Yeah. (laughs) He he changes personality though. If if you meet him as the captain, he can be quite stern. And, you know, when he yells out orders, oh my God, you don't want to mess with him. Right. But under that roughy toughy surface, he's such a softy. Yeah, yeah, hard of gold. Yeah, he's still with the Endeavour. But he's now the captain on the ship. He's, he works for the Maritime Museum. So I had to then go back to Sweden to apply for residency in Australia because in the end we decided, okay, which country could we live in that works for both of us, you know, where everyone can speak the language and where we both can get work and we decided on Sydney. So I went back to Sweden to apply for residency whilst he finished uh, circumnavigation and we ended up in Sydney in 2000 just when the Olympics were on. So, oh, my God, you know, you can imagine arriving, arriving here in Sydney and there were, like, parties everywhere and people were just so friendly and so helpful. It was so nice, you know, being welcomed like that to this country. And I could not imagine living anywhere else in the world now. This is this is home. This is where I want to well, spend the rest of my days. You, you're all over town right now, so you, <laughs> you've, you've made it your own. <laughs> well, I embraced Australia, they embraced me. So. <laughs> that's beautiful. Wow, that's really impressive. 23 years with the hubby mm-hmm. and a couple of kids. Mm-hmm. I've met one of them, your, your lovely daughter, mm. who was in many of your paintings. Yes. How has being a mum changed you as an artist? Um, gosh, I think, you know, being a parent is like it, you just have so much guilt about not spending enough time with them and not doing the right thing. Not sure that it's changed me as an artist, but I'm able to use my art, you know, to become a better parent. For example, like one of the things that's been amazing is um, my, my daughter went through a bit of a rough patch when, when she was about 11, 12. And that's when I started using her as a model. So in order for us to spend more time together and for her to see herself differently, I started painting her. So she would sit for me and we ended up, you know, being hung in art prizes and I took her to the openings. So it's so special going to openings and there's like all these celebrities and politicians and everyone wants to take a picture and she had to pose with her painting and and she used to come home buzzing from, you know, meeting all these celebrities. And I remember we got hung as finalists in the Mossman Art Show and her portrait was hung next to one of Bob Hawke. And so he was there on the opening night and we have this beautiful photo with them posing together in front of their respective paintings. Very cute. And it's really funny because out of that experience painting her, there's two other series uh, that came out of it. So after um, I, I sort of started working with Maya, I, 
I uh, realised there surely must be other kids that have gone through way more traumatic situations in their life. And I um, started investigating kids that have come out the other end of, of trauma and how adversity creates the opportunity to grow and uh, become stronger. So that whole series was called The Forging of a Spirit. So because, you know, in, in metalwork, when you forge steel, if you beat it, it becomes tougher, it becomes stronger. But if you beat it too much, it becomes brittle and it will break. So, you know, I, I really like the analogy with forging of, of metal because some of the most incredible, successful beautiful people that I know at one stage or another have all been through incredible hardship and and adversity. And it's sort of given them a drive to better their life and better life for others as well. So I painted the portraits of, you know, a series of uh, young people that I met through my friendship circle that, you know, had come from war-torn countries that had fled the tsunami in Japan, that had lost a sibling to um, cancer, that had, you know, gone through like these life-changing events. And what they all had in common is this sort of outlook in life where they were just grateful and they were so gracious in their life, how they approached the world. It's just really lovely people to be around, the families in, in particular. And out of that project then came another series I'm currently working on of incredible refugee women that I'm showing at the Manny Art Gallery and Museum, which opens in August, 27th of August, runs through to October. You know, gosh, I've, I've met some people through that where I, I'm just so in awe of them, like what they've gone through and where they arrived. I have so much respect, so much respect and, you know, and especially growing up in the East and having lived under a totalitarian regime and knowing what people do to escape that, that sort of suppression and then meeting people that have done that and risked their lives and left their family and having lost half their family and not knowing where they are and, and how they are just so, oh, gosh, such beautiful people, so so grateful and so, so warm and, and just gorgeous to be around. Yeah, amazing. So I've got the coolest job. I've got the coolest life, you know. Oh, wow. I, get to, I get to meet so many amazing people. I'm, it's just so exciting to be me. You have no idea. You know, I get to meet you. I get to hang, hang with you guys, that, you know. Like one day I, I hang with like superstars and next day I hang with like some corporate dudes and the next day I hang with refugees. Like what a cool life. What a great gig. That's beautiful. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty cool gig, isn't it? <laughs> Your work for me seems to capture the strength of the human spirit. Hmm. Is that something that you have as an intention or is that just something you do your thing and it's received by another in whatever way it's received? Um, no, I think it is on purpose. And because, you know, throughout art history, there's been, you know, especially females have been painted in a way that, sort of objectifies them and makes them look quite weak and submissive and they're more like a decorative accessory in the background and preferably they should be naked. And <laughs> for me, that is sort of my, my whole mission in life is to put out work that's empowering and inspires people. And, you know, the, the most amazing thing is when you get that connection with, with someone at an exhibition opening who walks up to me and, and says, you know what, this, this work really makes me feel something. This makes me feel inspired and empowered. And I want to look at that every day to remind myself of who I want to be. And I'm sure Kate gets that all the time, that people walk up to her and go like, your music has changed me, like you've helped me get through a difficult period. Or I think as creatives, you cannot pay with any money in the world, you cannot pay for that feeling you get when you know you've made a difference to someone. And it's so nice to hear that is noticed and acknowledged. Thank you. My pleasure.
Honestly, walking through the gallery and arriving at your painting of Kate, it's alive. I mean, <laughs> it's an incredible experience, not just, you know, for me, obviously I'm married I think to, you're biased a uh, little bit. Yeah, <laughs> of, of, of course, completely biased, but I watched many other people have the same experience. I mean, the skill is astonishing to me to be able to create a painting that has that quality of being alive. I mean, it delivers a spiritual, emotional reaction to mm. me when I look at it. Wow. So that's quite a wow. special talent wow. you have. So thank you. Thank you for creating that piece on my wife. And I particularly like it because I live with Kate. I know how strong Kate is. I know what a warrior she is. She's got this beautiful big smile and a wonderful warmth and she, mm. she makes it look easy to be Kate Sobrano. But I've been with her for 30 years and every day is an adventure. Every day is an adversity of some kind to overcome. Mm. Yeah, especially in the last year or so. Yeah. It would have been totally really tough. So I like it because it does show that fierce warrior strength side of mm. Kate and... Well, a lot of people have said queen. You know, she's yeah. very, she has a very regal pose, you know, the way yeah. she's sort of, you know, like royalty. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's what she is, you know. She's <laughs> music royalty. <laughs> she is. She totally is. So tell me just, I mean, and obviously you can't tell me, but just technically how the hell did you evolve and develop that skill to be able to paint and give that portrait such life? Is it just years and years of chipping away and developing your skill? I mean, I, I've seen the sketches. Obviously, you, you know, you sketched out three different options of how she was standing and looking and what she was doing with her hands. Do you see it in your mind from the sketch? Do you see how it's going to look finished and it's pretty close, you keep going until you get there or do you just sort of chip at it and then it takes shape? I don't know. Just give me <laughs> a few insights into how you went from that sketch to mm. imbuing it with such life. I think every artist is different. Um, every artist has a different approach. Some artists have a very clear vision in their mind how they want the end result to look. Um, I think I'm a combination. So I see what happens with the sitter and I'll, I like it to be a collaboration. And Kate's such an expressive person. And she will give you everything she's got. And I really felt that during the sitting. She wanted me to get the best of her. And she would get into, you know, give me like really intense expressions and looks. And I love working with people that I don't need to instruct, that just give you part of their soul, you know. So especially in, in portraiture, I think it's quite important that there is collaboration and that's why I wanted her to have a say in which pose we end up choosing in the end because I was leaning towards something more, you know, her mid-song or something like that, you know, with her hands out in front of her instead of like cusp like we ended up doing. But she said, no, this is where I'm at at the moment. I think I look calm, I, I look centred and strong. So that's what we ended up doing. I quite often have an idea how I want it to look, but in this particular painting, I um, ended up changing the background colour halfway through. So I started off with a dark blue background, which for me just didn't quite pop enough. We've always been talking about having different elements of red in the painting because she was wearing these, these cute little red bra straps and I said, I'll put some red lipstick on you, but it wasn't quite red enough. So I ended up going for the poster red for the uh, very... Good call. <laughs> and everyone loves the red background. So yeah, like sometimes I just get it right straight away and sometimes I just have to tweak things and change things around. But working with a good model and good material definitely, definitely helps. <laughs>
<laughs> I did ask you when we went to the gallery how long it takes to do a painting and you deftly didn't answer the question. So I'm not going to ask you again. <laughs> because <laughs> how clearly long is a piece of string? Exactly. Like every, every artist yeah. gets asked that question. Yeah. It's one of our, I guess, Pe one of our... Pet, pet hate. hates. Yeah, so I'm not going <laughs> to ask you that again, but I, I did note it was a really good non-answer you, you gave me. <laughs> but um, thanks for sharing that because you probably hate talking about how you do it. So I'm not going to ask many questions about that. It's like ask a golfer about their grip and other things, how they do it. Like you don't want to put your attention on that for the person. Yeah. Anyway, we talked about you having done the business studies. It was about 10 years ago you started painting the women. Mm. Where did you learn? You did business studies at university. So where did you learn to paint? And is there anyone you'd like to acknowledge who helped you at that time? Um, so I've always painted outside of studies. And whilst I was living in Sweden, I joined art circles and art classes and did workshops. And then here in Australia, I uh, spent some time at the Julian National Art School. And it's a school that's very traditional where it's not like Kofa or National Art School where you learn about you know, art history and, and content and they're only concentrate on technique. So you do the old-fashioned way, you um, bring in life models and you sketch from life, you paint from life and it's really the basic painting skills. Mm, practical. Very, very practical, very practical. And I really loved my time at Ashton's. A lot of, especially realist, figurative artists in Sydney and in this country have at some stage been studying at, at Julian Ashton. You can sort of see, you know, the, the technique. It, it shows through. And I think, you know, every artist benefits from working in that environment, like working with the models, working in a, in a life setting to hone in your skills and... Yeah, so there are some people I really want to acknowledge, the teachers at, at the Julian National Art School. They're amazing. Cool. If you had advice for aspiring painters and artists, aside from going to that school and getting lots of practical experience, any other words of advice for them? Um, I think for me there was sort of like three big elements to getting me here. Uh, one is a very clear vision of where you want to be. Just spend a day or two just working out what sort of an artist do you want to be, how serious are you going to be about this, do you want to be in prizes, do you want to be represented by a gallery. Work that out for yourself so that you have something to work towards too. But secondly, surround yourself with other artists. So for me that was joining an arts community. So I I did my time volunteering in different collaborative sort of situations and joining artist collectives. So I was vice president for a number of years, Portrait Artists Australia. I founded several other arts collaboratives. I founded an artist-run initiative called Project 504, which is still running, still exists. And um, so you, you're in a community of, of like-minded that will push you along where, where you get not just inspiration but also advice on, okay, which gallery is good, what should you do next? Like, and you get invitations to, to show in, in group exhibitions, etc. And thirdly, make sure your family supports you. That's huge because if the family support is not there because the first 10 years, so I've been painting full-time now for the last 18 years, and I tell you what, the first 10 years are tough, you know, before you break into the bigger galleries and before the serious collectors start buying your work, it is very tough. And unless you have a family that is willing to sacrifice some of their lifestyle, I guess, it's not doable. You know, because I, I mean, I've been so lucky, like in the beginning, I remember every couple of months or so, I would spend a weekend on the couch crying, going like, I can't do this. Oh, I need to get a job. And, uh, and my husband goes like, no, I will not let you give up on your dreams. <laughs> and he was like, bring me a cup of tea and, and a box of tissues and, and go like, no, you'll be all right. Just stick with it. You know. <laughs> 
And look at us now, you know, we're all right. <sighs> That's good advice. <laughs> Makes sense. Wow. What does a week, what does a work day look like for you? Um, coming from a business background, there's a, a book I read that really has helped me heaps when it comes to time management and it's called Eat That Frog. can't remember the author, but it talks about that we should do the tough stuff that will actually make a difference to your life and to your career, we should do that first in the day. And that's sort of a principle I live by. I do like the very hard stuff first because then the rest of the day is a breeze, you know. Artists always talk about procrastination. We're the biggest procrastinators. And um, just getting over that first five to ten minutes when you sit down and you're like, oh, let's just check on social media, let's, you know, just getting over yourself and just doing a really, really hard thing first thing in the morning, whether it is tackling, you know, something you've been working on, like you haven't quite resolved a, a, a part of the painting and you just do that first and you feel really good about yourself and the rest of the day is easy. Or you, you have to make a really awkward phone call to a gallery or you have to, ugh, you know, do something that's really tough but that you know will make a difference to your long-term sort of goals. So that. Yeah, there yeah. No, cool. Um, but I don't really have a life. So my life's just in the studio. There is no days off. You know, I try and take time off when my family needs me. But quite often I work on the weekends and late at night. I've had a couple of years where I had a, a shared studio with other artists that was off-site, and which was like enormously developing time for me. I, I learned so much in that time, just being in close proximity to other artists and getting that instant feedback on works. And, you know, I was so privileged to work with some of the most amazing artists in Australia today that I shared a studio with, and I've learned so much from them. But since then, I really prefer to have a home studio. So I've always had access to my studio any time of day so that after dinner I can do a couple of hours in the studio or in between stuff we need to do, I can spend that time in the studio. Yeah, I think as an artist, you don't really have a life, as you guys probably know. It, it's an obsession. <laughs> <laughs> Since my wife started painting about a year ago when COVID hit, <laughs> she's obsessed. Yeah. It's, it's every day. It's an everyday obsession. Yep. But it's beautiful. It keeps her out of the mall. <laughs> <laughs> True. For... Young painters, do you think it's harder now than it was a generation or two ago? Um, no, I think it's actually easier because, you know, there's so many new players on the market and just the accessibility of art through internet and social media would have really increased our chance for exposure uh, I know a lot of artists that are not even represented by galleries anymore because they do their own thing on Instagram and have a very comfortable life selling works directly to the public. The market's changed enormously. We don't really deal so much with brick-and-mortar galleries anymore. That whole industry is sort of slowly retreating and instead, you know, even the, the, the physical galleries are now a lot more active online and especially that like COVID has really fast-tracked that development with um, galleries moving to virtual exhibitions and filming everything and having these walk-through 3D virtual installations. So I think art is certainly moving towards being more accessible. There's still, you know, the art mafia and all of that out there, but I'm not in that market. So, um, yeah, I, I think definitely it's easier for, for artists now than what it used to be. Gotcha. Now you're a superstar in Australia. Is your work selling, well, it might have been prior to now, but is it selling in Germany as well? Um yeah, funny enough, I still haven't had an exhibition in, in Germany. I do have a lot of collectors in Europe, not necessarily Germany, but that's one of my still has to be ticked off the list things to do. 
because I'd love to go back to my country of birth and do a show there. You know, my collectors come from all over the world. I've got a huge fan base in the US. There's some really beautiful people over there. Yeah, I'm, I'm really fortunate to, you know, have people all over the world connect with what I do. So, yeah, on the to-do list. Watch this space. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure it's going to happen. Well, you know, I'm active in the European market, so I've got a gallery in, in Denmark. They invited me to a group show in October. Next year, I've got a Portuguese gallery that I'm, I'm going to be working with. Just, you know, at the moment, just little group shows where I send a couple of paintings because I literally cannot take on any more galleries at this stage. I'm struggling to supply the galleries I have. So eventually... Once I have like a giant studio and lots of assistants that do all the prep work for me and do all my paperwork and all of that, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but at the moment, I'm a, I'm a one-person enterprise and I cannot fit any more in my day. Gotcha. Well, thank you for giving me an hour of your time. No, thank you for <laughs> having me over. Such a privilege, honestly. It's been such a joy having you guys around and I'm so excited you guys are in my life. It's been amazing. So I, I never thought, you know, when we first started talking about doing a, a painting that this would happen. You always have a special place in my heart forever, <laughs> forever, seriously. Thank you, likewise. <laughs> no, it's been a really special time and it's been a silver lining, hasn't it, for this mm. strange year. Well, um, anyone out there who's listening, head along to the Art Gallery of New South Wales to see the astonishing portrait by Catherine. It's hanging there until September and then the exhibition travels across the country. I think Gippsland is the next stop. And, yeah, it's busy. They have around 140,000 people through the show every year, so make sure you get in there Preferably at opening time, it's most quiet, I've been told. Good advice. <laughs> Catherine Longhurst, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm Lee Rogers and you've been listening to my chat with painter Catherine Longhurst. Head to Catherine's website, Catherine Longhurst, that's Catherine, K-A-T-H-R-I-N, to see her amazing work and links to the galleries that rep her. If you get the opportunity, head into the Art Gallery of New South Wales to see her award-winning portrait of Kate Severano. It's the 100-year anniversary of the Archibald Prize, which is Australia's premier art prize, and it's an incredible chance to see not only this year's finalists and winners, but a curated exhibition of the most acclaimed paintings from the last 100 years. If you like what you've heard today, please give us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and share the blank canvas with a friend. Until next week, live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Millevich production. <laughs>